0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the editor-in-chief of Modern Retail. And this week, we have Connie Matisse, the co-founder and CEO of East Fork Pottery. And I'm excited to get into just ceramics. I love ceramics, but also just how the business has changed over the last year. There have been a lot of big changes recently that we're going to go into, but... um, Connie, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Absolutely. It's so nice to be here, Kale. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Yes. And uh, so when we first chatted, it was a year ago, and it was like pretty much the pandemic hadn't just begun, but like the ramifications of the pandemic had just begun, I would say. And so I'm excited to hear about everything post-June, because I'm pretty sure that's when we talked last. But for those who who don't know, why don't you just give sort of the rundown of East Fork, how it all began, uh, where it's been going, all that jazz.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, uh, it's long story, but sum it up. Um, East Fork is a, um, contemporary producer, manufacturer of ceramics, um, of plates, bowls, mugs, that sort of stuff. We're in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, Technically, we started in, um, in 2009. Back then, we were a very niche um, uh, one-person pottery studio making pots in a very traditional North Carolina vernacular, fired in a wood kiln, um, sold it to a, a very small market. And over the past um, several years, we have been scaling up into a kind of enterprise-level domestic manufacturer with hopes to be kind of the standard bearer for um, manufacturing in the United States moving forward.
0: When we talked last, you were beginning to do sort of working on pre-orders was sort of like how you were sort of uh, funding things. And I wanted to hear just more about how you've been dealing with recently all of the sort of supply chain hiccups, also closing places, opening sort of, how has that been going for the last year? Because I think that you have a really interesting model and it seems like you're very iterative with it.
1: Yeah, honestly, East Fork moved our way through the pandemic better than anyone could have hoped to move through a global pandemic um, we are coming up on 11 months of consistent profitability um, which is huge for us it's the first time that we've ever done that i mean it is a minor profitability but we are not hemorrhaging money um, and so um we've been I, i'm so 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 grateful for my um my leadership team for um, how consistent they've been and how how much we've been able to um, to really manage those budgets and put our, put ourselves in a um, in the most financially healthy place our business has ever been. Um, so I yeah, endless gratitude for the fact that we've been able to move through that um, and not come out of it on the other side so damaged like so many people have. Um, we were able to retain all of our staff. We've um, continued to hire through the pandemic. Um, nobody got furloughed. Um, it's yeah, I think for for our company culture, it it's been um, just it was a hard, you know, hard year, obviously, but I think that, um, the company, um, everyone here has felt really taken care of and really uh, appreciated. And, and that has generated this like sense of like, we did this thing together. We are in this together. Um, we're going to be better for it. Um, and so, yeah, we started selling on a pre-order, um, model when we shut down the company, we shut down the factory, um, in the spring, um, back when everyone was on full-blown quarantine. Um, the comp- the factory was closed for eight weeks and, um, we needed to to figure out how to how to keep money coming in the door, um, and we were able to just turn really quickly pivot into a pre order model um, because of our intense brand loyalty. Because people, um, I think we've done a really good job um, over the past several years of, of building true brand equity and, and um, building. Trust with between ourselves and our consumers, and so um, when we said hey we 're going to make these pots, we have no idea when that 's going to happen, but we promise we will. they were just like, "Okay, we believe you, you guys are going to figure it out you 've figured things out in the past, um, and that was really able to um, to let us continue to to have consistent cash flow um, after after a pandemic and um, and it was also kind of a, a nice opportunity for us to see how that model could fit into our our original um, model of just having stock on hand, and so now we 're moving into um, a more hybrid situation where some some objects are pre order, some are not. We have to figure out what that looks like from like a tech perspective. We're not there yet. I'm so freaking understaffed. It's so painful. But um, we can. We're we're moving. Put pots are getting put on the shelves, and like that lead time is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, and now we kind of like we're forced into having to think creatively about how to incorporate pre order and stock on hand models in the same space. And it's been working. So what would
0: is the average lead time right now?
1: We give ourselves like eight weeks of grace, but most pots are getting out the door between like two and four weeks. Um, And some things leave tomorrow. I I think that that a lesson that I've learned is that East Fork is – and we could talk about this forever, but like we're we are radically transparent to um, an extreme case. Like obviously lots of direct to consumer modern brands like love to talk about how transparent they are. Most of the time it's really bullshit. It's really special how like manufactured that transparency is. Um, and I am uh, a, a yeah, notorious overshare, really good at, at not being vulnerable, but, but, but actually just like. Uh, I don't have a lot of – don't have a good filter. I'm getting better. <laughs> um, but that kind of lended itself quite easily to being really transparent because it seems like the only thing to do. Um, however, I think that it got us into this pattern of of doing a lot of over-explaining to our customers um, to a point where we establish established some um expectations that were just completely unreasonable and unfair for our team to have to uphold. So um, like this precision of like this pot will get to you, we promise, in three days or mm. six, like having to like get that my minute about those details um has had a pretty negative overall impact. And so we're we're trying to shift around to being like, there's, there are reasons why we're not gonna sit here and like hand hold you through being like mm-hmm. it's it's actually you're gonna buy the stuff it's gonna get to you within this time frame and that's kind of all we can offer um and people are are they're getting a lot they're they're doing fine <laughs> it's a little bit more <laughs> for our customer care team but like it's just so much less pressure on everybody else in the team for having to like yeah, because that consistent with message, if that makes any sense. I don't know. No, Just it makes a lot of, of error. sense.
0: Yeah, no, I want to get into that because I feel like that's a thing. Like, And the radical transparency thing is something that I talk with a lot of brands about. And I think that you're in a specifically interesting situation because... I, I feel like you, you are the supply chain or for a lot, a lot, you know, you're manufacturing and I feel like a lot of other brands that are quote unquote radically transparent are, they get source their goods elsewhere. And so I think that you, you come from a different sort of standpoint where you can talk about transparency a lot, a lot better, or it's a different type of conversation. But I want to talk about, you mentioned the brand equity and that you've built this brand equity. Can you just sort of walk me through like that transformation, was that just sort of an organic thing that happened over the years? How did you, you know, was it a product of you over explaining things because you wanted to have this deep connection with your consumer? What, what was the exact connection that you had? And was it intentional or just something that happened and worked?
1: I, th- I think um, you know, East Fork launched without any sort of brand strategy. We just started, um Alex was making pots. um I was helping, you know, kind of share about what he was doing. It was all very organic. We didn't have like a, a, I mean, we eventually wrote a business plan, of course, but we didn't like come together to fill a hole in the market. You know, we didn't have to like get a, a team of, of strategists together to say like, you know, what's our, what's our vibe and what words do we use? And um you know, what do we talk about? What do we not talk about? Like, because again, I am a person with no filter. I just, I talked about whatever I wanted to. And like we, we were early adopters of Instagram and like using it actually in the app and just like kind of saying whatever came, whatever Insta came to our heads that moment. And I, 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 while I, I shouldn't say that I don't have a filter. That's actually really not true. I just, um, I have, I have to say, all I have all sorts of things that I say in my brain that I don't say out loud. But I don't. I've never thought that any topic is off limits. It's more about like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna engage in that conversation. We're gonna do it in a way that's really thoughtful and like understands the impact of the words that we're saying. But we're not gonna shy away from any any conversation in particular. Um, and so it just, I've always just followed Alex around with an iPhone and just documented what he does. And like, the the brand has been able to be. I think really fully human in a way that a lot of brands can't be because it has been me and my full humanness showing up to work every single day um, without a boss telling me, here's your brand guide. So um, I did, it was a lot of just like, uh, just, just showing up and I don't know to be myself detached from an expectation or for an outcome Um, And because I am a, uh, you know, recovering people pleaser who thinks that I can, like, be all things for all people at all times, like, I I think I did a lot of, like, sacrificing my own mental health and sacrifice, like, not understanding my own, like, person-workplace boundaries. So, like, I was just very available to people for many, many years. And, like, if people came into the DMs and they wanted to have a conversation, I would, like, show up fully for that conversation, even if it had nothing to do with pottery we're trying to like get that out of our customer care approach now because it's really it can be really toxic when people who are just like trying to do their job have to deal with like people's emotions that are not related to pottery um so we're, we're putting some healthier boundaries but I, I think it did establish this like um just this this understanding when our that our when our customers came to our website when they came to our social media they uh could very quickly pick up that there was a a real um human person who was learning as she went and making a lot of mistakes and trying to show up and own them when she did and like having a sense of humor and not being afraid to engage in conversations. And people really responded to that. Um, and so we're, we're trying to figure out how to keep doing that in a way that um, that still like kind of protects uh, ourselves a little bit. Um, yeah. That makes sense.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and I mean, so we should back up. I can't remember if you said this, but like until recently, you were CMO. That was your title.
1: That was my hilarious title, yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I don't did know you think CMO does?
0: <laughs> I mean, but like, talk about what? How did were? What, did you view your job as like marketing, or were you just sort of like I'm doing all? The, I I know that I'm going to be doing all the public facing kind of things in terms of like figuring out messaging and things like that? How did you sort of professionalize that? Or did you at all?
1: Um, well, so yeah, our, our structure has been, um, has been has always made it hard for John and Alex and I to put really clear boundaries around like who does what. And so Alex was serving as the CEO for a long time. He's really the, the visionary and the entrepreneur of the company, and he um, he's amazing at like getting things off the ground. But he's a lot less interested in like operational day to day running and and you know people management is like not what he likes to do. Um, he's super inspirational and can get up and like give an incredible um, speech. But um, you know he's he really is like his his highest best use. Is really in like looking at the ten-year future and making connections and bringing in new ideas that don't currently exist on the team and and stuff that really needs to um, have him be more removed. Um, Whereas I am an absolute control freak who like is dealing with control issues in therapy and like needs to like be up in everybody's business all the time and is obsessed with thinking how like this piece fits with this piece with this with this piece, and so I was. You know, the, the, the brand storytelling, like the content creation, that stuff came really easily and naturally to me and was really fun, um, I didn't have to like think too hard about it, but the part that that I kept getting really excited about and kept like having interest in was um, was being able to be kind of like the temperature checker of the, the organization as a whole to make sure that, especially when we started really thinking about our company values and how they actually manifested internally, um, I got kind of obsessed with um, wanting to um, be the kind of conductor of um, uh, making sure that all of the departments were working together really cohesively and actually, actually manifesting those values in day-to-day practice. Um, so yeah, I I, I started I, I don't know the performance marketing like, all that stuff like it doesn't really interest me like it's like I, right now our marketing department is literally nobody like we have a copywriter who's amazing and we have um, our brand manager who's leaving and that's our whole marketing department. Um we have a creative department. Um we have a you know, we've always done all of our in-house creative like I I've never understood I, I get why people outsource creative um if that's not their thing, but like the idea of outsourcing our creative has never been something that I've even considered. We've got an in-house photographer and designer and we just brought on a videographer and we're going to start doing podcasting. Um, so like the making of, of things that are beautiful um, to, to consume, like content, like is something that I, I really want to own in-house. So I, I was really hands-on with that part of it. But when it came to like basic marketing fundamentals. Like we have been, we've just, I've just been so hands-off because the resources were so much more required in production and in HR. Um, Getting a manufacturing company off the ground is so much work and requires so much money, so much upfront investment um, that I kind of like, like let my martyr tendencies be like, marketing is fine. I'll keep doing it all myself. It's fine. And until now where I'm like, oh wow, I need to build out like I, that, I, I'm I'm in a little bit of a frantic moment right now because I'm like, I've been working on my staffing plan for one in three years. And I'm like, I need to hire like 12 people in the next six months. And like actually completely overhaul, restructure, create a sales and marketing and like build a whole new company in a year. Um, so I'm that's a little freaked out right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds freaky. But that part's
1: that, exciting. That part's yeah.
0: Exciting. Well, that's sort of, that's what I wanted to get into because it sounds like just all of these different elements is sort of, the interesting evolution of becoming going from like a boutique to an enterprise company and i'd love to hear so like how like it seems like now you are making this into a formal structure you're figuring this out you're 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 systematizing all these things but you have for a few years been, been scaling up and being a more enterprise brand with national recognition. So ha- talk to me through that realization, because I feel like it's, you know, when, when you have that one-to-one connection where you're DMing and talking about your, you know, having that kind of connection with the customer, that works when I am when I go home and I talk with the, the entrepreneurs in my in my local shop, but it doesn't really work on a national level. So when did you realize that you need to change okay, things? We're and make
1: still it- doing that. We're still doing it. It's so bad. Like, we still do it. I still, like, I haven't made the change yet. Like I took the, I took over the CEO role and like, now like, yeah, I mean, our company's valued. I don't want, we have, it's so bad. Like nobody should do this in the way that we've done it. But also I can't imagine having done it in a different way. Like I, I have an unhealthy relationship to to my work that desperately needs changing six months ago. And I, (laughs) I, Alex has been, you know, urging me for years to get ahead of it and to start thinking um, about how to replace myself. And I have, I was so resentful to him for so long. Like, be like you don't even have, what are you even talking about? Like, I, I, I was so stuck in that idea of like, I need to be doing everything or else um, that I really put myself into a position where now all of a sudden I'm looking around me like, oh, oh damn, like what we're doing right now is not going to work anymore. Like we just, we have a need to, now that we are making more pottery, like, cause we've always been operating in this, in this um, paradigm of, of, of being able to sell more than we make. But we've also spent, two years doing nothing but increasing our ability to make pottery and so now and I've been completely hands off like I have I have not been thinking about how to scale the marketing department in a way that could match that so I feel like I'm having to play a lot of catch up right now um so yes like we we did get kind of like we did a really good job of of um getting some traction and like some national traction and like people see us as like as this big giant fancy company but like I don't even, like, we have someone right now who's helping me um, move um, from MailChimp to Klaviyo. I, I Sorry, MailChimp. I haven't told them. I'm breaking up with them yet. And, like, <laughs> she's like, how have you guys been managing this list with no automations, no optimized transactional emails, like, no data tracking? Like, we have, I don't know how we're here. Like, I know we're here. I do know why we're here. But we're we're not in the place we are because of any good things that we've done as far as like best practices with marketing. Like we have done this the hardest way possible. Um, And we've done that by um, being really invested in our company values. Like, I think that that is like, there was a moment in time where, you know, when when we first started talking about our company values externally, or I was like, this is, we're going to get called out for value signaling, or like we're saying more than we're actually able to offer right now. And that there was like this, this like, incongruity that I recognize, like I couldn't, I'd go to sleep at night and be like, we're saying all of this stuff. Like, those are all ideas that I believe in, but like, it actually isn't actually happening yet in real life. Um, But over the past two years, we've like been single-mindedly focused on building an internal culture that that does feel radically different than most companies, um, which is you know, people can't see that from the outside. We do our best to tell those stories. But as we started talking about that, I think people people were really interested and like other business owners were like, whoa, like East, East Fork is doing something that I haven't thought of yet. And and that has opened the door for us to be connected with brand partners like Samin, um, who, who had a conversation with us and, and could tell that we were not just talking the talk. You know, like- it, Doubling down on on doing that internal work that's really 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 hard has been the proof that that other people who do have bigger platforms have needed to be like oh no these people are legit I will I will work with them um, so we've had people be really good to us and like people who might have been out of reach um, or like who would have cost a lot of money would be like I want to I want to be involved in this thing that you're doing because I believe that what you're doing is is interesting and good um, and that's that's how we've gotten the national recognition that we have.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So for those who don't know, Samina samin knows Rat, who's the um, author of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and also just like one of the best food writers around. Um, I'm a huge fan of her work. Um, She's amazing. I want to get into the collaboration you did with her, but I also want to ask, but just the company values thing is something that a lot of different companies try and work on and they do. And, you know, this was very intentional for the last few years. So what, what were the exact changes and sort of how did you discuss it and how did you figure out what it was that would be sort of internal that you would know is real that so that you and then what you would put on your Instagram I feel like it's like a tightrope of figuring out what is signaling what isn't what is real what isn't and so how did mm-hmm, you approach mm-hmm. that and how does it manifest
1: oh my gosh Carol, that's like it is that's a four and a half hour long conversation and like a lot of Years, but it's um. So I think how it manifests – So a couple of years ago, right when we moved into this new factory spot, I I realized that you know we had been um a really um homogenous demographic. Our our team was you know we live in Asheville, North Carolina. It is like a really segregated place. Um, just completely ravished by early redlining in the 30s. Like no wealth in any in any black or brown population in North Carolina in Western North Carolina. Um a hard plate like it's it's got it's got a lot of problems um and there are people are working on it but like it it's kind of touted as this like liberal hotbed in the mountains and also it is um it's really easy for performative activism to happen here and for people like like good white liberal people to like pat themselves on the back um so it's what Ashville's approach to equity is not working um and i think that um that we kind of gave ourselves like maybe a little bit too much credit at the in the early days of like doing things that now are like well that's basic like everybody needs to do that, um, and so we had been like most people who are, are starting small businesses um, hiring friends of friends and friends of friends of friends until um, until we looked around and we we're like oh shit like there's there this is not okay. Um, and so first and foremost, like recognizing that our recruiting and hiring practices were not working as far as like fostering a a truly inclusive and equitable culture, um, was really important. Um, and then having to like go through the growing pains of, um, addressing that, um, um, where you, a lot of, a lot of white majority companies like they decided to go on like a big diversity blitz and they hire a bunch of people who do from different demographics, but they're not in any way, shape or form ready to actually um, have a safe environment for people who are to, to, work in. And so, um, you end up hiring people, um, from really different backgrounds and then there's like constant microaggressions or constant cultural clashes and like, or no training on your, your leadership team to like be able to work across cultural differences. Um, and then you end up causing a lot of harm. So we went through that, um, when we tried to like quote, diversify our, um, our staff, um, and learned a lot of hard lessons. And at that time, um, started, um, reaching out to, um, different equity trainers, um, like pe- facilitators who work with like these liberatory frameworks, um, who'd never actually worked with for-profit businesses before, but we started bringing in some training and, and started trying to educate our, our then staff about, just like the basic functionalities of white supremacy and oppression um, so that the conversation gets, could get started. Um, and that that was useful in just like kind of identifying, um, requiring us to do the self-work of seeing how how common business practices really are rooted in, in supremacy. Um, but once you started doing that, then you're like, oh shit, literally everything we do is problematic um, as far as like how much you pay people, like how those negotiations go, um, drug and alcohol policies, um, kind of urgency workplace culture where like people are working around the clock. Um, it's yeah, how to working with collaborators and influencers, like in a way that doesn't feel tokenizing, making like, there were times where like I first started hiring models and I like, I was so excited to be paying people to model, but I didn't talk about how much they were going to get paid at the onset. I didn't like, you know, that wasn't like in a contract um, and I would just write a check and then people would be like, we like, this was less than I expected. Or like, why didn't we talk about this on the front? So, so yeah, major lesson I learned with, with equity practice, especially in marketing is, is being really, really clear about what you can and can't offer from like the very first conversation um, and, and building actual relationships with collaborators and influencers and whoever you're working with so that um, it's, it's not just transactional. It's like, I, here's what we want to do. I want to hear what you want to do. How can we bring those two personal needs together in a way that feels really good for both parties? Um, so that was a lesson. And then, yeah, most of it comes back to, to HR, like making sure our benefits packages are actually addressing the, the needs of, of people who work here. Like, you know, fancy all of the different like incentive programs that like promise money in, you know, 50 years are like not that awesome for people who need to get their tire fixed to come to work yesterday. Um, so yeah, an understanding that, that we needed to actually assess the needs of our workforce and make benefits and policies that match those needs versus like kind of taking playbooks from other companies of, you know, direct to consumer companies where most people are like living in an office and have general wealth and nice apartments and yada, yada, yada. Like the, those, pol- those just don't work for a manufacturing business. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a, That's some of it. Um, <laughs> language justice, hiring translators, starting your recruiting really early, like actually developing relationships with recruiting partners in town so that you're like not just hiring from the same 10 people who know each other. Like, I mean, it's endless. It's endless. So that's, that's where all of our attention has been for the past two years it Has not been on SEO. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so then was what led to this outward recognition was that just because you started working with partners who greatly respected you did you start posting about that on your website sort of how did you approach that messaging part like what what made Samin say they're a great company
1: so, well, Samin was from a friend, Sana, from um, Diaspora Co. And so I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, Alex, Alex, had, for instance, like wanted to, want, he's like so desperate for David Chang to, to come down to Asheville and like, um, go fish, fly fishing with him. Um, which, like, I'm sure at this point he could probably just like make that into himself. Like, I, I think I've always been, I'm so scared. I've, I've never been the type to just like, cold DM someone, he's so much better at that stuff than I am. I like to like develop real relationships over 10 years and maybe one day something organic will happen out of it. Um, And, you know, that, that makes things really slow, but I also think it it makes those relationships feel better and, and, you know, more real. And um, so I I think, yeah, I, I approach that by, um, by taking my time with getting to know people so that I feel like I have a good understanding of what, what might be interesting for people as far as collaboration, rather than just like sending an email being like let's collaborate with no actual ideas for um for how that could come together in a in a way that's beautiful and feels good and so many of the collaborations that you see happening are just like two brands coming together and doing something that you're like but why like and i'm not i'm not talking about things like Crocs and, and Hidden Valley like i love those sorts of weird things like, <laughs> i love like a i love a kitschy brand like collab moment but there are also some where you're just like where's the commonality here? Like, what's the story to tell? Like, what, what is this product? Like, um, so yeah, I, I working with, with partners who, who really are deeply invested in the same type of um, change making that we are feels really important for us um, bringing in um, people who have completely different aesthetics, but, but work from like a a, state, a similar philosophy um, is interesting for us. And like definitely not just thinking about people in the home space, like thinking about, I think, I don't know. East Fork is like a very um, holistic brand. I think any, anyone can be considered any genre of thing can be considered potential for partnership. So long as there's like a a shared ethos.
0: Uh, Just going more into that in terms of like, as you're expanding, as you're ramping up production, are, are, expansions mostly with collaborations, like going into something that you haven't before, you you might collaborate with another company or another person who is in something different like the bath or, you know, the outdoors or something like that, for example. Or mm-hmm. are you, or like, I because I think of you mostly as dining wear, um, but correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, how, how, are you, how are you sort of going about that? And how are you, is that going to be, are you going to bring a lot more of that in-house as you continue ramping up production?
1: A lot more. Um, like
0: new kinds of products, like things that like might products, be yes. outside of, out of your- like yeah, comfort zone yeah, yeah. right now.
1: So I think that like the first, when we first opened our brick and mortar stores, I was like, oh, fun store. Like we get, I can get half off of things. I'm just going to start filling it with stuff that I think is cool. And it was kind of like a variety shop. It was all over the place. Like we, we were buying like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, it was hard to do any like cohesive storytelling around it because the assortment was so random. Um, and that's the same, same with our pottery products. Like, um, well actually, no, very different. The pottery is so constrained by Realities of production that like it's very hard to add new products to our line. It takes like two years of thinking about that before it happens. So I think with resale, I was like, let's just put a bunch of stuff in the store um, that can kind of sh- tell a story about who East Fork wants to be as a brand in ten years or whatever. Um, and that was helpful for that, but it didn't like sell products. Um, and so as we started growing, I, I know that we needed to like to focus our energies a little bit more. And, and I really was just like, let's just stick to the kitchen. And the table. Like that's that's all we can handle. Like I can't be in baths. Like I know that like so many companies are like, let's get into every single room in the house as quickly as possible. It just didn't it didn't line up with how I like doing stories and collaborations. So and and we also, a bunch of us at Eastport come from a, a food and beverage background. Um we like take it really seriously. We are extremely anti-wellness culture here at, <laughs> at Eastport. Like there is something about like turmeric teas and like just like I have no interest in being like participating in any sort of those like anything wellness culture associated (laughs) like we like junk food and we also like fine dining and we also like want to like be really celebratory of people's eating habits, like however they are, like, do not want to be prescriptive at all. And like, I mean, I just said that and like, if people really need to have like a wellness approach to their food, that's (laughs) fine for them. But like, it's not like something I want to put my stamp on. So that said, knowing that we wanted to focus on the kitchen and the tabletop, because that's what all the products we were already making kind of lent themselves to, that felt easy to then start defining the other products that we sold. So it's like, if it goes on the table or in your kitchen, it's kind of fair game. Um, And then from there, we started thinking about how to um, tell stories around those resale products um, in a way that felt organic. So we um, had the idea to, like, do themes um, and to have, like, an assortment of products um, that were specific to that theme um, that were kind of, like, bookmarked by – or bookended by – uh, you know, a regional cuisine or a type of cookbook or something like that, and then from there we could say, okay, who is an expert on Gullah Geechee? Who is an expert on you know, low country or like um, Appalachian food? Um, and then have like really direct asks to collaborators. Like right now, our theme is Southern foodways that like eliminates ninety percent of collaborators, but also like gives you endless um, opportunities to partner with people in a way that is very specific. We're like, oh, this person is reaching out to me because. They, they actually know and understand and appreciate what I'm doing and want to talk about that and engage with that in a way that's interesting and not just because I have a bunch of followers on Instagram. Does that make sense?
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. We're like almost running out of time, but I, we haven't really gotten into the present. We've sort of gone all over the place and I've loved yes. this conversation. But um, like, so you've just taken on the role of CEO. What prompted that? Like, what does that mean for what's going on in the future? And sort of how how you've talked a little bit about how you know, you're know you ramping up production, you're trying to become more of an enterprise operation. What are What's your goal for this year? Now that you're in this sort of hybrid model we talked about earlier, you're now CEO. What is the overall grand plan in terms of this?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I guess touching on like the how did this come to be thing, uh, the way that our leadership team was structured before was not working. Alex and I are married. We've been together for 12 years. We've been like doing this thing for so long, all up in each other's business. It it just wasn't it just wasn't working anymore. And um, it's been you know, that's it's caused it's really intense to work with your spouse. It's so, so intense, especially when you're like raising two small children. Um, and so John, actually, our CFO, started recognizing like, hey, something's not working. We need to shift. Like, I don't think that like us just doing the things that we're doing and trying to improve current systems is the thing. Like, I think we need to completely reimagine what this could look like. Um, And so he brought up the idea of me moving into this position and Alex kind of right away was just like, okay, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, And so that as we started to think about, again, like Alex is kind of the the main driver of the growth of the company as far as like putting the goal in front of us and saying, let's get here next. Um, We wanted to rearrange it so that he could really be focused on that. Um, and that I could be, um, kind of like a more integrated, um, like where our external voice and our internal voice were the same, where like our messages that, that we're trying to tell the external world were also the same messages we were telling our employees. Um, and, and so we did this like long process, like five month process of talking to business coaches and astrologers and Enneagram consultants. And, um, I mean, we talked to everybody like, and, and we'd meet for four hours, twice a week. And like, I, so I, I made this kind of roadmap um, where we were like, first, we're going to do tell each other all of the skills about each other that we admire. And then we're going to tell each other all of the things about our ways we show up and work that are really harmful. And then we're going to talk about like, you know, we, all of the different types of personality tests to start identifying like where we might best be suited. And through that process, we decided that it made sense for me to be CEO, for Zoe to be chief operational officer, John to stay as CFO, but he's he is like, very excited to step away. He has no interest in being. He's fine with being the the CFO at a twenty million dollar company. He's not okay with being a CFO at a fifty million dollar company. He knows that, so he's going to you know, hire hire a finance team, start stepping away, be serve on a board capacity in a few years. It just started becoming clear like what we needed to do, and also it became clear that um, we needed to 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 double down on our efforts as like on our own self-growth and, like, personal growth as lead- team leaders um, if we wanted to, like, we just couldn't stay in our old bad habits, essentially. Like, we needed to, like, seriously level up. Um, So that's what we're doing right now. It's coming with a lot of growing pains, but it's been feeling really, really good. And I, this position makes so much more sense for me than the CMO position does. Um, I, I feel like um, a lot less need to like micromanage things. I could just a lot, I just feel like a lot more grounded in this position. Um, and so all of that is in service of, um, of a lot of growth. Like it's, this is not, you know, we're kind of expecting to stay at this pace for a while now. And, um, I don't, we haven't like decided what the what our upper limit is, but like we we can see East Fork being a hundred million dollar company. We can see, we can see having like a expanded, campus where people come and there's, you know, there's a learning center, um, there is a restaurant, there's community spaces, um, that's kind of what we do best is bring people together, have parties, like make sure like make people feel warm and fuzzy um, and also like really challenge their belief system all at one time. Um, so that's exciting for me. Um, and then I think the most important thing that, that we're thinking about, we're not there yet because we're still learning it all ourselves and we will continue to, but um, I, I, I see us as being able to, to really be mentors and leaders in, in the business space um, and to, um, to kind of be bellwethers and actively um, grappling with um, how to do capitalism better until a, new, a better system gets invented um, and, and prove that you can be have a sustainable, financially sound business while not exploiting people. Um, and I think that as as the leader of the company, my excitement comes from being really transparent about what that process looks like and and calling out attention to when we make mistakes, when we do the wrong thing, um, so that other people don't have to, like like kind of putting ourselves on the cross a little bit and just being like, yeah, we did this thing. Don't do it again. Like you don't need to now that I have this, like I've, I've told you this lesson. Um, and I think if more people were able to show up in that way and say, we did this thing and now I have to take accountability for the harm it caused... And I'm going to do something different. Then people would be causing less harm in the first place. Um, so that honestly is like the driving force for me um, with growth. Is like getting really creative with how you approach this thing, um, so that over time you can you can really look back and prove like yes, you can have a you can be a good business and whatever be attractive to investors and also generate actual traceable. Impact on the health and wellness of the community that you're operating in.
0: Wow, that's a lot. I have one like final, just because I'm a business journalist, question. Yeah, so I like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, and you mentioned the investor part. So you know, what what kind of growth are you seeing month over month? And also, like, what is like, how are you dealing with investors? Like, how much do you want to get investment so that you you still have control, but you are able to grow? Because I imagine that's a tightrope you're dealing with.
1: Yeah. So we're not scared of investors and we're, we're scared of VC. We're scared of like the investment, like the, that, uh, so growth, like we were operating at 3X growth, um, two years ago. And like, we were kind of planning on 3X growth year over year, um, for the next few years. Um, during the pandemic, um, we took a real sobering look at, at, um, how 3X growth actually impacts the people who work for you. Um, and we're like, nah, no, we can't do that. Um, and so we made some pretty serious changes to our, our three year plan. And, um, it, so it's more like two X right now, uh, which is still a lot of growth um, when you don't have a bunch of VC money, um, you're doing it manually. Um, so, and when you're making your own product. um, so yeah, two, we're kind of doubling year over year and, um, that feels attainable. Um, like where we can keep people healthy and happy. We were just noticing like when we were on that slog at, more, at looking at more like 3x, people were people were not happy. We were not happy. Um, so that was really important. Um, and our, our we do have investors currently. Um, they've they're all super value add. Um, they give us full creative reign. They invested in us because they trusted our vision and they trusted us as humans and did not invest because they thought that they were going to get a fast return out of this business. Like nobody is going to invest in us if they like want to make a quick buck. Um, and we've been really lucky to, to have, um, we're we're talking to, or hopefully closing some funding, our biggest round of funding, um, ever, um, in a couple weeks, um, scary. Um, but the, the folks that can't, can't talk about it yet, but they've been awesome. And, and, um, what I love is like when I ask about, you know, why do you want to invest in our business and, and what do you, what do you see the value in? Um, they point out all of the kind of more nuanced um, parts of the business that I care so deeply about. Um, so that feels good to, for that to be really seen by people who want to give you money. Um, yeah. I don't know. We've done a good job of really laying clear, like this is what we can promise, not never over promising investors. And um, they've kind of, returned, um, return that by, um, trusting us and, um, being there when we needed help. But, um, yeah, Alex is, Alex is all the the money raising stuff. <laughs> um, he's good at it.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, Connie, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I, I really appreciate you joining me. I, I really had a great time chatting with you.
1: Thanks, Kale. You always ask the best questions. So I appreciate Aww. it. <laughs>
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.